0: Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with episode number seven of the Yacking Podcast, where we talk about life Business and more, and we bring you tips and ideas for a changing world. We don't have any guests today. It's just going to be Kathleen and myself, and Kathleen's going to ask me a few questions about my long and interesting life, much of it spent in a different part of the world. There's a few things there that will amuse you and uh, some that might make you think. So, hi, Kathleen, over to you.
1: Hi, Peter. Welcome, everybody. Uh, it's, it's good to be with everyone, and yes, we thought we would do this Video podcast because Peter has had a very interesting life um, before his time here in Canada, and we thought it would be so interesting to kind of showcase some of the events that uh, that he experienced back when living in uh, Zimbabwe. Some of them are humorous, some of them are downright traumatic. But he's he, the man has amazing resilience. And anyways, we wanted to. Just bring to you some of the the life stories that he um that he has and and he actually has a book, so he's a published author and and here's uh his book, five Steps to Thriving on adversity and at the end, we will tell you how you can get a copy of this book, but we also wanted to share with you some some uh, of the stories that are not in the book, and he's got so many of them so Peter, tell us what t- Let's let's start. Let's just dive in and tell us some of the stories from when you lived in Zimbabwe.
0: Thanks, Kathleen. Thank you for that introduction. I, I think I need to start off when I was quite young, and, and I was really lucky to have parents who... Uh, did not um, wrap me in cotton wool Quite the opposite in fact And they encouraged me and my brother To ask questions And to be curious And, and really that has benefited me my whole life And some people say I'm awkward and a maverick Because I just keep asking questions so one of the early things my dad did, uh, he started farming and he had not been a farmer's son. So he started with not a lot of capital. So at the age of 10, I was milking cows before and after school, which is perhaps not strange for some Canadian boys, but in Africa that was not normally done. And then we had pigs and I had to uh, help him with the pigs. One day I remember in particular, Pig had had a litter of piglets and she was a big, huge, large white sow and, uh, the worker, It was Sunday, so the workers had been given the day off, so my dad had me helping him feed them, and he said, go and give that pig, whatever her name was, uh, this bucket of food, and I did, and I noticed a bit of wood had fallen off the thatch roof into her sty, and it had a nail in it, so I thought, oh dear, one of the piglets is going to get hurt. So without thinking, I jumped down into the and bent down to pick up the wood. And as I did that, I put my hand on her back. So she got a bit of a fright, thinking her piglets were threatened, swung her head round like that. And even the female pig sows have tusks about that long on them. And that caught me on the head. It missed my eye, luckily. And um, it gave me a fair cut. So I was complaining. I was only 10. So I sort of started whining a little bit, probably maybe crying. And I picked myself up off the floor and... I said to my dad, I think I've been hurt, and he didn't see the blood, and he said, well, if you can't help me, bugger off to your mother and get out of my way, (laughs) so I went down to the house, and my mother said, oh, my goodness, what have you done, I said, the pig got me, and it was my fault, I frightened the pig, I don't think it's serious, and she said, what did your dad say, so without thinking, I said, he told me to bugger off to my mother, (laughs) so you can imagine the reaction my poor father got when he came down for breakfast, but Uh, My mother's attitude was, well, it would probably be stitched, but it's Sunday. We don't really want to worry the doctor. Hospital's 20 miles away. Um, I think we'll just put a few band-aids on it and see what it looks like tomorrow. And I never did get stitches in it, and it healed. It was a lovely talking point at school, and um, that was sort of an early lesson in in not sniveling, being tough, and, and really, that's the way we were brought up. So that's just a little story from my childhood. (laughs)
1: and <laughs> uh, that's a good one i know you, you have so many when we chatted and um y- you know what tell us about the tell tell everybody about the airplane one uh, the airplane story oh, no you have a couple God. of them but there's one i that have a couple me recently and, and why don't you recount that one
0: i'll tell you about that one so i was waiting for a big um food company in South Africa, Durban, South Africa, and I was exporting stuff to several African countries and the Comores Islands. And one guy who was sort of agent for us uh, that I worked with for the Comores Islands said, I'm going there in my plane, flying my own plane. Why don't you come with me? So I said, yeah, I'd love to, you see. So he said to me, it's a small plane and it's a single engine. Uh, I don't have a life raft, we're flying over the Indian Ocean. Can you organise a one of those inflatable life rafts? So I said, "Yeah," and I thought he was joking. So of course I did nothing about it. You see, so two things happened. We the plane was called a Mooney, single engine, and the inside seated four people as long as none of them were too big. It was uh, remember the old British car, the Mini. I, I guess the cockpit was about that size. Yeah, no bigger than a Mini. So he told me two things, he said, don't drink too much because we're gonna be in the plane for seven hours and there's no washroom. So that stuck in my mind. And the second thing he said was, um, did you bring, as we got in the plane, did you bring the life raft? I said, no, I thought you were joking. He said, no, I wasn't. He says, can you swim? I said, no, not, not very well. He said, well, nor can I, so we might have a problem. So anyway, we start flying over land and we're flying over a country called Mozambique, which was uh, newly independent after the coup, that, uh, and, uh, after the coup in Portugal. And it, it was a real bad situation, civil war. And uh, we had a tillex saying that if we had to force land for emergency, we were allowed to land in Mozambique. Mm-hmm. But some colleagues of ours had done that about two weeks before and they were still in jail in Mozambique, even though they had the ticks. So we didn't want to land in Mozambique. And while we're flying over Mozambique, suddenly the he has it on autopilot. We're going along beautifully smoothly at fifteen thousand feet. And suddenly, this plane starts falling out of the sky. I mean, like in a movie, Whing! like this <laughs> Oh dear. And he says, "Oh shit, we've got a problem." <laughs> and I knew that. <laughs> and he played with a stick, and he got it level. He said, "Oh, something's gone wrong with our autopilot, but but everything else is working. So we just have to fly it manually." So we took turns. I mean, he helped me, he let me fly it quite a lot, but we didn't go all the way to the because of this problem. So we stopped in Blantyre in uh, Malawi and we stayed at a hotel, but the hotel's quite far from the airport. So we went out from the terminal building and we found a taxi. It was an old Peugeot. One back door didn't close. We had to hold on to it. The driver, typical of Africa, the driver said, I can take you to your hotel, but we have a problem. You know, that's the most common phrase in Africa. And we said, what's the problem? I have no money and I have no petrol, gas. So can you pay me in advance for half the journey? So We said, yeah. Oh. So we gave him some money and off we go. And on the way to the hotel in Blantyre, suddenly he goes off the road down the shoulder and he's doing this with the steering wheel and something had broken in the steering. And he, we almost turned over and we stopped. And he says, oh, I'm really Sorry. So he leaps up onto the road, and he flags down yet another private car, his friend, and he says, my friend will take you to the airport. He said, but we've paid you. No, well, I'll sort it out with him. You pay him the rest. And they had some arrangement. So we we got to the hotel. That was the second escapade or adventure in that escapade. And the next morning, we went back uneventfully to the airport, took off. We're flying over the ocean. So the pilot says um, about that life raft, I said, the mean the one I didn't bring he said yeah he said well that we're flying at 5,000 feet it's about three and a half hours flying time from the African coast to the Comoros Islands he said at our loading that we have on the plane we can glide for about an hour I guess from this altitude if the engine cuts out he said but we need to go three and a half hours before we get to the island so for two and a half hours. or We're going to be in no man's land over the ocean. If the engine stops, we're in the water. So it's a pity about that life raft. (laughs) No life jackets, nothing. So we held our breath for those two and a half hours, believe me. Anyway, we did get to the island and he said, "Um, hold on, this is a really difficult uh, place to land because you fly straight into a big volcano with a landing strip. So you have one shot to put that plan down. We did. So that was rather an exciting little journey that we had there, you know.
1: Oh my goodness. You know, when I think of you, Peter, I think of uh, a cat with nine lives, because honestly, some of the tales that you've recounted over the uh, the (laughs) course of the years that I've known you is like, how on earth did you survive that? Or (laughs) how on earth did you overcome some of these uh, events that have happened? So Tell us, tell tell us something else about um, your life in. Well, and, I'll give uh, you
0: another sure. quick, quick airplane one while I think about it. So, when I was, we had a terrorist war, so all able-bodied men had to spend, uh, had to do national service. I did nine months. Younger guys did a year after me, and then we spent a varying period of time in in the army on call up between doing our work. And towards the end of my period there, it was uh, six weeks army, four weeks home, six weeks army, four weeks home. But on one of my tours of duty in the operational area, I was really lucky that the major, the company commander, was a good friend of mine or, and a business colleague. So he got, gave me a fairly cushy job as being the company clerk, which meant I sat around in shorts, sunbathing most of the time, and handed the mail out to the guys and did a bit of work on signals duty on the radio at night, sometimes went as an armed escort on a truck. But it, it was a fairly comfortable six weeks and uh, it was also a bit boring. So we had a um, couple of helicopters stationed there and one fighter plane, two, two-seater f- propeller-driven fighter plane, which was um, called top cover. He would fly high above to guard the helicopters. who he were very vulnerable to ground fire. So the pilot had to take a technician or a second person with him in the plane, and his technician was thoroughly bored and would rather sit in the, you know, in the base drinking beer. So he went, he spoke to all the NCOs, non-commissioned officers like myself and said, would you like a ride? And I said, oh, I wouldn't mind. So he said, okay, we've got tomorrow. So he straps this parachute on me and the parachute's like a cushion under you that you sit on. And I said, how do I use this? He said, I, I haven't got time to tell you and you'll probably break your leg anyway, but If you have to use it, you've got a chance of surviving. But if you haven't got the parachute and something goes wrong, you know, that's it. And I said, okay, thank you very much. What do I do? He said, I'll get rid of the canopy. You see that red patch on the wing? He said, I said, yeah. He said, you jump onto that, but you won't hit it because by the time you get there, the the plane's gone already. And I said, and then he said, then you pull this handle. Thank you very much. This guy was a born comedian. So we're flying at about 8,000 feet above the, the ground. And suddenly the plane falls, it's wrong. He says, would you like to fly it? I said, yeah, I'd love to. And I'd flown a small plane a couple of times in the past. So he said, it's very sensitive. It's not like a helicopter. You've got to be really careful with the stick. Okay. So I'm flying and we go into cloud. And he said, when you go into cloud, watch your instruments. and Always trust your instruments. So I'm watching this artificial horizon thing. And suddenly the plane starts falling out the sky. This is like in my other story. It's going down like this, like a World War II Battle of Britain movie. And he says, well, correct it. So I'm trying to pull the stick because I know which way to pull it and it won't move. And And he says, don't overdo it because it's sensitive. And I'm trying and trying, trying and it won't move. It's a dual Control plane, right? He's got a stick and I've got a stick. And we, this engine's really whining. this things screaming down. And I think how far is the ground? And I eventually I said, take over. There's something wrong here. So he gets his stick and he goes, huge maneuver. What the guy had done, he jammed his knee against the stick. So I couldn't move mine just to get me worried, you see. So he corrects the plane and the heart sort of starts beating again. And um, then he wanted to test his gun on the way back. So he came in this huge dive down to, and he fired. He put uh, two cannon shells through a 45-gallon oil drum sitting on the side of the runway. But it's such a steep dive. It's like a roller coaster at, at um, Funfair. You know? So that was another very interesting little plane ride that I had.
1: <laughs> I'm sure you didn't appreciate his antics.
0: But he did say to me, he said, I've got to congratulate you. The last guy I did that to vomited all over my cockpit. So he said, you didn't do that. Well, served the <laughs> <life. laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's funny when people get bored in the bush they get up to some funny tricks. Oh my god. Anyway, that's a couple of yeah. couple of airplane stories.
1: Right, right. And um, I mean you you just there's so many of them Peter. So I know you had recounted one where you were um, actually it's from the book and I don't know if you want to go into that one where Uh, You came face to face with this gigantic beast and you just were staring in this beast's eyes for must've been an eternity. It seemed, but I'm sure it was just nothing but more than seconds. But I mean, this, this beast could have killed you in an instant, but anyways, um, maybe you just. Oh, that's, that's
0: in, (laughs) I think that's in the section of the book. What I call about um, treasure your treasure your jewels or treasure the diamond treasure the diamonds that's right you know and I the point I was trying to make is that um, when we look back on our lives we all have little little things that that stand out that were absolute gems when we think of them and and some of them are very simple and that was one that I mentioned in the book because I was sitting in this really dry part of the country it was over forty degrees Celsius heat and I was on guard next to a dry riverbed in a bush camp. And I heard this noise behind me, turned my head and there was this warthog, which is like a a wild pig, but quite big with tusks four to six inches long coming out of its lips. And uh, he was almost within touching distance because he hadn't recognized I was a human. I had camouflaged uniform on and I turned very slowly and he was so close, I could see all the beads of moisture on his snout and every hair on his face and his ears. And I just kept dead still. And I knew that he wasn't going to hurt me. And he knew that I wasn't going to hurt him. There was a, a real connection, you know, that I haven't often had with animals. And uh, it seemed like an eternity. But as you say, it wasn't that long. And then I got stiff and I tried to move. And my gun hit a twig and made a noise. And he turned and shot off. But that was that was a real uh, connection and, a, and an amazing experience, yeah. And one that people pay thousands of dollars for to go on safari and would never get anything like that. So I'm really grateful to have had those opportunities.
1: Right, right. And so, out of, out of curiosity, and I don't know if you want to share share it with everybody, but what in that moment where you locked eyes with this amazing animal, what went through your mind? I mean, I'm sure. I don't know if you thought, "Is is this animal going to kill me?" Or
0: oh. You, not at, the, all, the, not at all.
1: you were captivated so captivated by this beautiful creature that what was it it 's almost like you, you were communicating
0: absolutely him. that's what it felt like it, it was um there was no fear whatsoever, there was no concern, no trepidation um, there was peace and tranquillity and and all I can say is connection with another one of god 's creatures um, and an ease an ease of silent communication that that is even very difficult to establish with people with someone you love it it's it's hard to describe, but it was mm-hmm. um real high level deep exchange of energy or something and but it was peaceful it was it was really wonderful.
1: and a knowingness that neither one of you had any intent on hurting the other and absolutely
0: absolutely. That's I think if I hadn't. Yeah, I think if my gun hadn't hit that twig, he would have come another pace and probably his nose would have touched my back and because um, I was only turned a little bit watching him out the side. I think he would have made physical contact, but again, without any intent of hurting me.
1: Right. Have you Have you ever any encountered anything else similar to that with any other animals? I mean, you lived in Africa, after all, where there's a lot of... <laughs>
0: Sure. Um, With my horses at times, I've had a lot of horses in my life, and at times there's been a definite connection with the horse. You know, I I remember um, we have a little time. I was on a horse called Copper. I've had two coppers, three coppers, in fact. I was on a horse called Copper. And we were herding cattle to get them into it 's called a dip there 's lots of ticks in Africa, so you put your cattle through a tank of insecticide to kill the ticks every week in summer and I was going really fast, cantering, galloping after a stray steer, and there was a hole in the ground that i 'd forgotten about it was like a depression, and down he went and it was on the side of a, a slope and I was dazed and I came to lying on my back, and out the corner of my eye, he was uphill on my left on his back with his legs like this. And I thought, ah, oh, the poor horse is dead. He's broken his neck. And then I looked at his eye and he was watching me. Now, he if he'd moved at all, he would have rolled down on top of me, and he was watching me. So I quickly got out the way and he watched. He turned, his eye followed me till I got to his nose, and then he rolled down the hill and stood up. So he knew that he was he had to stay there until I moved out of the way, so that again that incredible connection yeah oh,
1: amazing. Love <laughs> yeah yeah goosebumps, thank you for sharing that that 's wonderful. How are we doing for time?
0: We are on eighteen nearly nineteen minutes, so we wow. yeah we 're nearly nearly there, so that 's just a a few stories. And I, I'll just sum it up by saying, you know, one of my slogans is, for the benefit of our viewers and readers, it, it's not what happens to you in life. And a lot's happening right now that are causing great concern for people. Mm-hmm. It, it's not what happens to you. It's what you do about it. that counts. And that sets the tone for the rest of your life. You know, if you choose to be a victim, that's a problem. But if you choose to make the best of it, then you can. So, so Peter, my little it. piece.
1: Tell, tell uh, our viewers and our listeners about your book and how they can go about getting a copy. So once again, it's called Five Steps to Thriving on Adversity by Peter Wright.
0: Sure. It's, get... fi- it's five lessons that um, I think are helpful to get through life. And each lesson supported by a few stories from my life, some of which I've mentioned here. If you want to get a copy of my book, it's not yet available as an ebook. It will be soon. But if you go to my blog, peterwritesblog.com, and below me here, you'll see the link. There is an order form right on the front page, and it's $15 Canadian and I will send you a copy, autographed, too. Great. Yes, I have Thanks, a-
1: autographed a copy myself, so thank you for that.
0: <laughs> you are welcome. So, that's it.
1: And, um, and I'll just give you a little bit of, a, of a, an update in terms of what I do. I am um, owner of Carry Tech Solutions, and we are a company that is an outsourcing, an IT outsourcing company. So we help companies here uh, in Canada that require some sort of IT help, whether it's projects, uh, software customization or development or app development. Uh, that's what we do. That's what we help you with. And you can reach us at com.
0: Thanks, Kathleen. And yes, in this funny time we're living in, Kathleen provides a really good service. So get hold of her. Her her contact details are at the bottom of the screen as well. Thanks, Kathleen. And thanks to all our viewers and listeners. Until next time. Take care.
1: Bye-bye.